Is the death, the killing of Alexei Navalny in Siberia, is that the end of resistance in Russia? Is it the start of a huge mobilization of public opinion across Russia and actually across most of Eastern Europe as they become aware uh, of the impending threat to themselves? It seems that we in Scotland are really not abreast of the developments that are gathering pace, um, perhaps because we've lost track of what's happening in Ukraine. And of course, that too needs to be something that we pay attention to. And we do in this podcast. Uh, we look also at the impending vote uh, in the Commons about Gaza and whether Labour's endlessly shifting position will shift to actually support the SNP policy, what that might mean for Labour. Uh, we look also at the recent statements there have been by both Labour and Hamza Youssef about the uh, complaints from folk in the North East that they feel that their economy is about to collapse. Where is the leadership on the green transition right now? Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, Joms, and welcome to this week's edition of the Leslie Riddick podcast, which we're recording on a Monday because Leslie is in the exotic uh, Olapool, which, believe it or not, yeah, now I'm, this is this is this will tack you back. Well, tack me back because I used to play a game at my granny's called the Great Game of Britain, which was um, a game that you played around the the railway lines of Great Britain, and Olapool was a significant one. You know, in the game for me, because I always thought this Olapool, that sounds really but, fantastic. But there's, no, there's no railway here, though. No, there was in the 1950s. Really? Yes, right. I believe so, that, because it was a train station there. Yeah, so, and uh, it was exotic a place to me, a Samarkand and Timbuktu, Olapool. Just you resonated. I've been here, Pat, in a million yeah. years since. But I mean, I will actually, no. this will probably end up being the only talking point of this podcast where everyone goes, really? A train station in Ullapool in 1950? Well, I think it was because it was on the <laughs> I, gate. I, I, can, I can find out almost by going next door, you know, which I'm very tempted yeah. to do, actually. In fact, yeah, you know, so I'm going to do that right. Hang on a minute. Now, Leslie is nipping next door to check to see if my 1959 memories are correct. And have I mistaken Ullapool for someplace else? And I've been under a misapprehension <laughs> no. for the last 65 years. No. 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 What the dickens did I think it was then? Because I was sure Olapool was there. So there you go. That's a, that's well, a, that's this a, will now be the talking memory. point. I mean, one of the reasons that there's a very good road across, actually, is because the, the ferry to uh, Lewis goes from Olapool. So, you know, that the road across to Olapool was sort of improved because there was no other way to get to the ferry terminal. Right. So anyway, never oh, mind. Oh dear, shattered. I'm shattered. <laughs> I can't cope with it. But still, Olapool has got this sort of slightly exotic quality, simply because it is kind of like almost like a proper wee town. In fact, it was a it was one of those kind of um, trying to get the right word built towns, you know, like Pulteney Town actually up in Wick. Um, so it's quite quite got a little sort of linear setup. It's got you know very well functioning. It has a Cayley place that my pal Jean Urquhart ran for many years. Now her Bairns run it, which was one of the first hotels here to stay open all year round, which kind of made it quite a place. And then of course it had the Klondikers in the Loch Broom, uh, which boosted the population. I mean it practically doubled and trebled in the winter months, with all sorts of truly exotic sort of 
well, this might lead us in Russian <laughs> Russian boats mm. uh, sitting in the loch here and actually perfectly amicable stuff. I mean, hilarious stories, really, of people sort of trading fish and chips for sort of four bottles of Russian vodka. <laughs> I can remember on one occasion there was, uh, I think, the, you know, the, there was it was the Soviet bloc, basically. So it's really there was a football game, the Soviet bloc versus the free world, <laughs> which was basically a load of guys from the Klondike ships against the guys from Ullapool. And it turned out that um, the guys on the ships didn't really have proper shoes, so they were just going to play bare feet. So I think the great story was everybody just took their boots off and had this game in bare feet, you know. So there was very good crack, really. I can remember those days myself, and it was kind of hilarious and busy and visual, you know, that's yeah, a, a kind of, you know, a deep sea loch with high kind of mountains on either side with all this cluster of brightly lit Klondike ships at night and everything. And although they went, you know, but sort of in 1989, it was one of the things, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, that all disappeared. But I mean, Ullapool is still bubbling along. So, yes, Ullapool. <laughs> yeah, it's a long way around saying I'm in Ullapool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the Russian connection. Mm. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm realising uh, that <clears throat> the, the film about Estonia, which was shown, gosh, it's all been a bit of a blur because I've been in Inverness, Nairn, Thurso. Uh, the day before yesterday and they showed both films there the Estonia and the Dundenmark film and there's a guy in the Estonia film who is absolutely a dead ringer for and in fact even that phrase is so bad for mm. for uh, Alex Alexei Navalny and uh, you know it was the day after his death that that film was being shown and it sort of hung over the whole thing because it just suddenly invested everything you were seeing in that film and all the kind of worry people were expressing when we made that film in 2020. There was protests way before the invasion of Ukraine. There was a protest going on by Ukrainians in Tallinn, in Estonia. There was a kind of march through of NATO tanks and stuff as part of the celebrations for uh, for Estonia's Independence Day, which I find a little bit kind of you know, sort of mm. didn't feel good to me, but I had to kind of get over myself because if you spoke to people, they were so thankful that the NATO allies were all there parading their hardware through the streets. Um, and now you'd have to say, I mean, when when uh, that news came through about um, Alexei Navalny being found dead, uh, I mean, I just, I just stopped me short, actually. I mean, it's one of those moments where I can remember where I was when, you know, the thing came out about David Bowie dying. And I, it's the same now about Navalny. I could not believe that. And I mean, I'm sure everybody will have been watching now and seeing what happened. But I mean, this guy didn't need to do this, did not need to be his fate. And I mean, I don't mean just because Putin and his cronies didn't need to have killed him, which it kind of looks like whichever way this is approached, mm -hmm. this is what happened. Um, he didn't need to go back to Russia. You know, he when he was poisoned with Novichok just after the Salisbury poisonings. And I'm sorry to say this. This is the moment when um, Alex Salmond should have quit RT, the Salisbury mm -hmm. poisonings. But anyway, um, that was around the same time he was poisoned, Novichok. Um, and so he was his his uh, now widow managed to persuade the authorities, amazingly, to let him get to Germany to recuperate. So he got to Germany. He was out, you know, um, and he decided when he got better, he decided that he was going back to the 
to 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 Russia. And he knew what would happen. I mean, we've all now seen there was a documentary done, Navalny, in which he was asked, um, you know, what would happen if he if he died. And his advocacy to everyone is then, you know, how powerful you are. Then, you know, how powerful the resistance to Putin is, which, of course, is precisely not how anyone is looking at this at the moment, because he was young. He was only 49. He was I mean, he was on that last video that they had with him the day before he died. He was joking, as he often did. You know, you don't see a picture of that guy, a frame of that guy without him standing tall, being relaxed, joking with the guards. You know, just you wouldn't believe that the guy had just been handed 19 years in Siberia. And, you know, so much commentary is pointing out that. Um, okay, there's a tradition of of dissent in Russia being pretty sort of firmly stifled, shall we say. But I think it was John Simpson was saying you have to go back to Stalin Mm -hmm. to find a Russian leader that actually killed his opponents. So today, as as far as I can see, um, the reports that that Lomaldi's body has finally been found in a morgue somewhere in the Siberian town with bruises on his chest and his head. And, uh, you know, all sorts of attempts by the authorities not to not to let his widow in to see him. So this is, you know, whatever has happened, uh, this is just appalling. And what's what I notice now, probably because of this Estonia connection, my friend that I'm staying with here has got family that live in Berlin. She was on speaking to them uh, yesterday. And the place is now everyone is terrified of of there's a third world war coming. Right. Because of all these moves, you know, again, which we're sort of sitting going, oh, you know, well, yeah. you know, if you're sitting closer to all of this and what that's giving now is a absolute green light to all the kind of, you know, well, to Putin, obviously, um, who who clearly has got ideas of trying to kind of reconstruct aspects of the Soviet Union. Um, he's winning in Ukraine, and because of the situation there, where you know the United States has pretty much frozen a lot of uh, its funding, uh, Russia took took the Ukrainian town. I'll mispronounce this. I'm sorry of Avdivka when Ukrainian troops withdrew, and this is now being hailed as you know the biggest victory in this war for Russia for almost a year. This is two years now, almost to the day since this started. Mm-hmm. Um, and y- you know what's what's happening is just. Another commentator remarked that Russia has now become a war economy. It's basically absolutely ponied round to producing armaments in the way that all countries, including, in fact, you know, that's one of the reasons that mm-hmm. the Clyde was a target during the Second World War, because it became a munitions factory, a giant munitions factory. And that is happening in Russia. So they're now really turning around the ammunition and, and the the tanks and everything. And the opposite is happening in Ukraine with uh, the the money drying up from the states and hesitation and kind of, you know. And so there's a there's a big sort of set of of voices developing now within Europe um, saying, you know, this this is now Ukraine is a proxy for everything else. And everyone, Estonia, Lithuania, Finland, I mean, Berlin. People are now looking at this and saying we can't plan. We don't feel secure. We don't know what's happening. And this we can discuss, you know, kind of with a bit of a 
Well, I don't know if anyone's laughing at the prospect of Donald Trump, you know, potentially mm. being back in the White House. But that remark he made, you know, that if anyone yep. is stepping up to the mark on on uh, funding for NATO, um, he would sort of basically invite um, Putin to invade them. I mean, that just chills people, you know, to hear that kind of stuff happening just by the by. And this is you, you can see, you know, that it would be not hard for a lot of people now to just be falling into complete sort of almost hysterical despair about this because there were reports that are not kind of early April full stuff about Russia developing nuclear weapons for space to knock out Western satellites. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at the details of this, you just close that story down straight away because the prospects of having a nuclear explosion in space is, well, you know, it, it kind of defies every treaty that's ever been. But hey, you know, <laughs> Who, how does Putin look like he's worried about that? And, and you know, there's, there's reports now of even in Westminster is now developing um, thoughts of having a sort of agency that would look at essentially hardware from subsea cabling, <clears throat> which again, in the Baltic, the Russians have been accused of sabotaging a lot of the pipelines there. So from the pipelines to the, to space, this is all the new aspects of security that come in. If you're looking at hostility on the scale that people fear is being generated um, by the removal of the last really powerful opponent to to Putin. So it's kind of if you start if you read through a lot of this stuff, it is and there's no pulling the punches. So many people and commentators are saying um you know, the West just didn't want to believe that this was possible mm -hmm. to happen, turned a blind eye, had alternative explanations when all the markers were there. The people, the countries in the front line have, you know, have armed up. And the problem for the for the left as well is that none of us are keen on the idea of arms. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a perfect storm. And then throw in the situation in Israel, Gaza, having pulled everybody's attention, you know, Absolutely. away. Absolutely. And it's grim. It is grim. There's no two ways about it. And there's, when we spoke about it before, I mean, I, I must admit that I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, it just fell into the background, Ukraine, with me, with the focus on Gaza and what was going on in Putin's Russia. It all drifted into a background of just that it existing there and it being that way. And that was that kind of stasis. And... And it is it is getting to grips with the fact that these this incredible destabilizing force that has grown and what has the West done and what has our UK government done to counteract it? And the other thing that, that just sprang to mind there, and this may move us on or not, is the fact that uh, George Galloway, who is uh, in a prime position now to win that Rochdale by-election, it would appear to me, uh, is a Putin apologist. You know, and that's that's the man, along with significant number of people on the left who've been a, a specific kind of person on the left, who's been a, an apologist for Putin and turning around saying, oh, look at the Nazis in the Ukraine and look at this and look at that. And well, what we're faced with is an imperial expansionism. Yes. And then actually that mention of the word Nazi, <clears throat> I mean, again, according to my pal, um, in Berlin at the moment, there's it's quite a maelstrom. I mean, it's a it's a frisky, enormous city at, at the best of times, Berlin. But the, the alt-right is really organising. And yeah. so people can't feel they can't go out and protest about Palestine in case that begins to look like it's anti-Jewish. 
fueling the anti-Semitic yeah. stuff that's coming out of the alt-right in Berlin. So the thing is, there's just, you know, this this is a it's a it's a dangerous situation, and our I think our lack of awareness of Europe, which began long before Brexit, you know, I've been I I'm you, you too are old enough to remember when you would get reports on the BBC or whatever, there would be correspondence in each country yeah. uh, of Europe, and you would get reports if they had an election just for the crack, something that had happened, and it framed your thinking, you know, because you were you're framing. Your thinking was framed by there's so and so from France. Oh, look, that's what they're doing. You know, so you got an idea of what was going on. Then it all got kind of reduced down to having one EU correspondent. Certainly when I was on the Scotsman, it got reduced down to just one person. And that was kind of hopeless because, hey, you know, as a continent, this guy's trying to cover. Then because that looked sort of almost impossible, people just began to lose their correspondence completely. And then mysteriously, we end up with a blooming Brexit nonsense. So. We we are unaware really um, of 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 the kind of change of feeling and change of mood, um, and the the important political changes that are happening with Germany's changing position as well, and and that's all sort of going on quietly. And we are being infantilized actually in Scotland, because if, if we're becoming an independent country, we will be an international player now happily in the sense that Hamza Youssef has a keen kind of aware and a, and a, a good uh, a good kind of position from the beginning on the situation in strong position on Gaza. We've got at least that kind of, you know, people are at least aware of that. And there's been discussion around that, which does show you what a leader of a party and a first minister can do, because I think the Scots are, you know, have got a fair um, awareness of what's going on. That's only one part of a, you know, we are in a continent of Europe. And if we're going to be rejoining the European Union or whatever, you know, we're never going to not be in Europe. We are Europeans, whatever sort of you know trade body we join, if you like. And we need to keep abreast of what, uh, you know, what the vibe is, because th these are our neighbours and it affects us all in the end. Yeah, and it is SNP policy after the that, that incredible debate that took place at the SNP annual conference a number of years back to be a member of NATO. You know, so we're signed yeah. up for that. That's an SNP government well, post-independence. You know, I know, and that is still, you know, a, yeah. a very debatable one because you see what can happen. And we've had this conversation before. Nordic Horizons had a very interesting event where uh, some, some Norwegian academics who are in NATO, Norway's in NATO, um, we're pointing out the difficulty that you're in an organisation in which the, the you know the kingpin America can easily be headed by somebody like uh, Donald Trump who basically leaves NATO. Yeah. And you know the discussion <laughs> that he was starting then was that Europe needed to to put if everyone's being asked to to, to develop two uh, percent I think it is sorry if I'm wrong on that of their GDP towards defence then would it be better to be putting that money into a European kitty run by Europeans than to put it into a NATO kitty, which fundamentally has got potentially Donald Trump at the head of it? So, you know, mm. there's there's all sorts of important questions. And this is the point. That's an active question being raised by some people, certainly at the same time as Finland and Sweden are actually joining NATO, you know, so... But this is it. The continent is trying to figure out in its various ways how to deal with this threat. And we're sitting here, you know, as if nothing much is kind of happening. And that is, folks, the sort of British approach, which is, you know, it's not much bother to me at the moment. 
you know, short term thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean, to be fair, I'm sure critics would say, come on, the British government has put quite a lot of money into particularly Estonia, actually, but into Ukraine. So, I mean, OK, fair enough. But, you know, the 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 the, the sort of feeling, the media, the stuff we end up talking about, what seems to be important can be so trivialised so easily here. And we've got to kind of keep a, a kind of weather eye on what's happening across the piece. And it just ain't good. And as I said, I am, I'm not going to say guilty, but I suppose I am. I'm guilty of that in, in the sense that I do not keep my eye on that. I mean, I was, I was appalled by the, uh, the assassination. I was appalled by it. Uh, but again, within the framework of all the else that was going on in terms of, and I, I, I do say it quite clearly, the focus on uh, what uh, the Israeli government has turned around and said about the fact they've given, uh, I think it's a March the 10th deadline for uh, Hamas to release all hostages, otherwise all bets are off and they're going to they're going to invade, <laughs> invade if you like, Rafa. That's where my, my mind was on. And it is that that, that dreadful thing that, that is the, 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 the quote the other aspect of it as well is, and I've got to, was in the, the, the framing that's taken about Navalny was that, and it's not Stalin who said it, it was a, a German satirist, his name I can't remember, who's uh, made up a French diplomat who said, one man's death is a tragedy, uh, but thousands are a statistic, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's that that kind of thing that, that I was kind of thinking, well, Bono gets up and stands up and talks in Las Vegas at a show about Navalny, you know, where was Bono when he was when he could be talking about the thousands of children that have died? And it's it's that that separation and that that holding that duality in your head that I find difficult. And to come around and say to it, yes, this has an impact way, way beyond that. And do not negate the importance of the man and his death just because Egypt's like Bono decide to take to try to take this on as an issue and not others. Do not judge within that framework. And I was kind of guilty about doing that, to be honest. Well, um, I mean, I think the thing is that that uh, in a sense, Navalny's death only draws attention back to a deteriorating situation that is affecting thousands of children. You know, yeah. Um, in, and yes, and, and I, I notice, you know, as, as well on Twitter at the moment, there's lots of reports going around that there are apparently there's lots of footage of, at the moment of Russian soldiers executing Ukrainians around that area that I described, which is why the Ukrainians had pulled their, their soldiers out because they didn't want to be encircled because mm-hmm. they feared that all their soldiers would be killed. So there's plenty going on, horrible things going on in the background. And it does draw attention to, you know, where we we relate and we relate emotionally to what we see. And we've seen day in, day out, we see what's happening in Gaza thanks to the valiant efforts of all sorts of different filmmakers. But uh, you know, it, there who are able to send material out. And at the same time, we're just not seeing Ukraine, or if we are, we're seeing what looks some. You know, and that the, the horrible thing is, by comparison, Gaza is just a flattened wasteland with people cowering yeah. on beaches and stuff. It's just, it's just apocalyptically awful. Uh, you know, you, you you then get Ukraine, and this is the the horror of what's happened to us. That, you know, at the beginning, you couldn't imagine living in Ukraine and with everybody cowering in the cellars and, you know, everything shaking, not being able to going out, you know, being picked off by snipers. But actually, now when you look at it compared to Gaza, at least yes. there's actually buildings standing up. And sometimes it's people that look like they're going around, they're shopping quite casually. It's 
I mean, this is appalling. But back in those zones where there are no reporters at the moment, who knows what's happening? And I mean, I also noticed um, I didn't look properly because I stupidly didn't bring my charger for the laptop. So we're conducting this podcast on the last wee tiny <laughs> thread of black crossed. in the battery. <laughs> so sort of, I've been kind of looking at everything on my iPhone, you know, um, where I've had signal. Um, but I think David, I saw a thing with David Pratt saying that's me packing again. And it looks mm-hmm. like I'd imagine that's him heading east. Yeah. So I, it, I would imagine, too, that probably quite a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the the broadcasters will have to be rethinking where they've got people. And then the other thing to say is, you know, this is it, it sounds like a terrible thing to say and it's not an excuse, but it's just a fact that this all, you know, foreign coverage is very expensive. And at the moment there is. You know, we've got used to um, half a programme, I have at least on Channel 4, being from Gaza. You know, so they've got there's a huge expenditure going on for all the broadcasters at the moment. And it's an appalling thought that our awareness of what's really happening in the world is completely dictated by the sort of budgets on uh, broadcast companies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I suspect a lot of this will change, uh, you you know, in the wake of this. And it is just that he's symbolic and in the sense that he didn't need to come back from Germany. Yeah. You know, he came back to his death and he knew that was happening. So that, I mean, that was, you know, that's such an incredibly strong sacrificial thing to do in such a sort of light, sort of almost not quite jaunty way. So, um, you know, I, and again, you, you know, there's been com- you can hear the, the discussions around it where obviously the West is hoping that there's going to be some massive uprising in Russia about this and then begins to feel a little bit nervous that actually there really hasn't been a huge public on the streets reaction. And then, of course, realises what would it take? You'd need to be crazy to actually do that, albeit there have been hundreds of people arrested. Yeah. So. Uh, but there was a, an interesting interview with a woman whose surname I can certainly remember as Khrushcheva in that she is, I think, the great granddaughter of Khrushchev. And um, she she was saying, you know, in the end, Stalin was undermined, you know, yes. whilst he was the iron dictator and, you know, even more cruel and brutal uh, than 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 Putin. You know, the, this sort of slow build of resentment and, and the need for alternatives, it doesn't become public until it does. So mm-hmm. she still believes that there's, you know, the op- the opposition is growing. But there we are, you know. So anyway, that's a gloomy way to start. But nonetheless, it, uh, you know. Is it, it, is it going to get any cheerier? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is that thing when you were you were talking about how much we actually see, and this is a maybe an aside, maybe not. I saw the Newsnight interview with Victoria Derbyshire and uh, Howard Jacobson, the uh, eminent uh, writer, uh, author, and one of his suggestions was that they were actually, you know, we were seeing too much of the what he did refer to as appalling. Uh, situation in Gaza. But because we were seeing so much of it and it was being repeated, it, it was actually taking sides, you know, but we're taking sides because we were seeing so much of it. What he also turned around and said was the fact that he was uh, frightened to walk down the street now because uh, if he heard laughter of young people and if there were students, that, that he was worried that he was going to be attacked. 
And it's it's a really, really odd one. I mean, I tried to get to the bottom of, of what was going on there, Leslie, in terms of is this correlation between the safety of the state of Israel and the safety of British Jews have been so aligned now across many people in the Jewish community that anything we now see, and this came up on question time as well, anything we now see which is actually critical of the state of Israel in its uh, conception and the way it's structured and organised. And anything we say about the Israeli government, anything we say about Zionism, we are now de facto anti-Semitic. And that goes back to what you were saying about uh, Berlin, uh, where it's far more apparent because of the rise of the genuine far right. Yeah. Well, I did hear this being discussed with someone pointing out that the same process of separation of stuff has had to be gone through for the last decade. Well, how long is it since 9-11? Is that 20 years? Gosh, yeah, it must be. You know, oh, more. Gosh. Aye. So, you know, over that time, everybody's had to weed out their separate thoughts about Muslims, Islam, yeah. um, is, you know, the Islamic State, um, jihad, you know, none of us knew anything. No, nobody knew much about all these the different aspects of of the whole re, you know the whole whole part of the world really, and have had to go through separating out their thinking, which to a degree you know the ability well Hamza Yusuf's election and to be fair Sadiq Khan and Anas Sarwar suggests yes. that to some degree people have been able to kind of separate this out and kind of get to a point where everything isn't all lumped together. Um, and perhaps the recentness of what's happened, it's only still been since October the 7th. People are still trying to get to grips with all of this. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is true. I, I ended up because um, I was staying for the morning in a in a friend's, uh, you know, it's, it's a great thing to have pals all over the place. But uh, and it's it's yesers, you know, it's this great network of people who just, you know, realize you can't dematerialize after an event and just you know say hey come and stay with us so i was actually watching sir uh, laura kunzberg for the first time in a million years um and there was a jewish actress on there a lefty you know and saying mm -hmm. exactly the same sort of stuff that she's now actually got bodyguards uh which is which is it is it is all appalling and it is all mixed together but this is brings you back to the politics of the thing because I, I, I'm afraid I still think that this is what must be laid at Keir Starmer's door and Rishi Sunak. But there's no point knocking at that door because it's no. kind of, you know, <clears throat> it in fact doesn't even exist. But um, if you are to give a blank check to Netanyahu, you have sandwiched together dangerous things. And the job of the international community was to create a template which begins to tease apart the horror of what happened to Israel from the continuing huge great horror of their reprisal um, to tr create a template of international law which is why do we bother with it why have we bothered since 1954 with all these kind of structures if when it comes to it people are just unwilling to move and if you allow all these things to kind of get gelled together you're creating the you know the, the kind of confusion in people's minds that then allows easily the site of a couple of key sig signifiers of Jewish faith to turn into a, you're the guys who are battering the guys in Gaza yeah. we're seeing every night. Now, I, I just still think people aren't stupid, um, but it doesn't help when leaders don't lead, essentially, in that in crucial business of making distinctions. So, 
you know, where we are with the Gaza thing is still so bad. And um, again, I was listening to the Sunday programme on Radio Scotland, which is very good, I think. And uh, <clears throat> there had been a long interview between Martin Geisler and Anna Sarwar. It would have been yes. the only thing, the only, <laughs> the only thing I would have liked to have heard because he had a, an equally interesting um, conversation with Mark Diffley, the pollster beforehand, about the enduring support for independence and the fact that actually, as discussed for a long time here, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Labour is now getting quite a strong group of independent supporters within its potential support, which is an interesting, you know, problem actually for them. And I had hoped Martin would have at least thrown one question that way to him. You know, it's like, what are you actually going to do about uh, the the evident continuing interest by half the population in having an independence referendum. But still, he went through an awful lot of, you know, of other things. But when it came to that question about Gaza, basically, I mean, boy, I've never heard somebody go right. You know, it's like it was like a man on a hot tin roof there, you know, just jumping around trying to avoid that his conference has basically voted for an immediate ceasefire yeah. and that there is no difference between that and what the Keir Starmer is about to announce. And that the thing that's needed is for the whole of the uh, Commons, the UK Parliament, to vote for uh, a workable, you know, I mean, you, you don't need me to repeat this, folks, because you've yeah. heard this ad nauseum and it just sort of makes you scream. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, uh, the um, SNP chief whip had texted in. <laughs> That's and right. This was Johnson. great. And actually, yeah. I see people giving Martin Pelters on this. That takes some doing if you're live on a programme to yep. keep a weather eye. And this might be some of the producers watching as well. The temptation is to shut up shop and just watch the whole damn thing stays on air. But somebody <laughs> yeah. was, was smart enough to notice that. So Owen Thompson had basically, you know, tweeted or, you know, emailed in or something to say, um, I am the chief whip. And this, which Anna Sarwar is saying now, which is that Labour whips are speaking to the SNP whips about potentially if there's any wee tweaking of the motion that would let them support it, is nonsense. They have not been in touch. The other thing that is nonsense is the idea that the, the, the motion, they haven't really had a time to look at it yep. properly. I mean, as Philippa Whitford tweeted, it's been online, here it is, since last week. Yep. So, I mean, again, it would be, you you know, I, I mean, maybe it's much too much to expect that you can't totally anticipate what someone's going to come away with. But it would have been nice if that had all been available for Martin to be able to have come right back and said, but that's just not true, is it? You know, um, at the time, because they get they get away with absolute horseshit, you know, on yeah. this. And do they think nobody's going to check? It's extraordinary, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So anyway, you're, yeah. you're, nonetheless, when you think about the seriousness of the subject, you know, there's no point in getting into sort of gotcha moments with all of this. They have a real problem sitting ahead of them now. What are the two Labour Scottish MPs going to do? What's Starmer going to do? You know, mm-hmm. we, we await with interest. The only thing you can be certain about is that um, Stephen Flynn will make the strongest possible case yeah. for the best possible policy. Full stop. Yeah. Well, it was Douglas Alexander. Uh, yeah, you notice he's come rolling back into, yeah. the, into the news. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, Dougie. When he was on uh, the Coonsberg show, he in, in reference to the, the SNP motion, he said, this is not a parliamentary parlour game. Which I thought, well, yeah, well, it's back to the student politics kind of thing. The other thing I noticed this morning was that Oily West Streeting had eventually turned around and said that Israel has gone too far. 
And he mm-hmm. did say this. And if I were a Machiavellian Labour chief whip, I'm going to take all morality out of this. And I know this may sound funny, but if you're a if you're a Labour Party chief whip, I wonder about what your moral but moral uh, stature actually is. What I would do is I would reach a tacit agreement to allow Murray and Shanks to rebel, mm-hmm. and I would turn around and say, "Look, you two rebel. It's going to be utterly meaningless within the framework of the parliamentary vote." If you do rebel, but that will signal, oh, look, there's Anas, as he's claimed to be. I will stand up for Scotland's interests and I will I will have my disagreements with Keir Starmer. And look, the two Labour MPs have just voted for an immediate ceasefire. So but that's that's me being that's me putting myself in the position of being a Labour Party chief whip and being uh, amoral to the nth degree. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I'd just be intrigued to see if that's what they do. Fingers crossed that the Labour Party actually discovered its moral spine and actually votes for an immediate ceasefire. But Starmer, uh, like Sarver, is dancing around the edges of this and it's, it's, it's appalling to watch. It is, but then, you know, you can just, you can kind of imagine the headlines now if he's, if he's ended up being, you know, you turning Keir Starmer last week, although it yeah. doesn't seem to have affected the no, polling not, stuff no. much. But still, you know, so we're not going to do the, you know, the Green Deal to the full degree. And then the Azar Ali kind of business, um, you know, that's not a great look. And then you suddenly, after you've said that you can't really call for an immediate ceasefire because it's sort of meaningless, you then call for it. I mean, this is where you could imagine that, you know, if, if they were actually doing grown up stuff, they might want to find just a form of words that lets yes. them continue this. Yeah leathers basically to kind of give a little modesty skirt to Keir Starmer who currently has none um but what was it 56 Labour rebels the last time the SNP uh, had this vote and you know it'll just be so interesting to see which way that goes now because clearly we know a lot more than we did then there's been a lot more water under the bridge there is as we discussed last week you know the the organization now that's standing candidates um Mm -hmm. you know pro-palestinian candidates against labor uh they've it's been an appalling misjudgment um but now once you've gone this far and you've talked as much crap fundamentally as keir starmer has done on you know these tiny semantic differences you're gonna have to find something that still lets you say well there was a bit of movement so but still, to, to so, so since that's inevitably where someone's going to have to go, like a grown-up, if someone can find that within the Westminster Labour front bench, um, why they would say they'd already started that approach yeah. when they freaking hadn't is just, God. But yeah. anyway, you know, it'll it'll just be a very interesting set of days to see what actually happens. And you've got to say, whilst the SNP does not have its problems to seek, well done to... Um, the SNP, uh, you know, it was it was Hamza Yusuf's leadership on this that 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 and eloquent, sincere, authentic um, position on this that has given an alternative voice in the whole of British politics to this uh, situation. And Stephen Flynn within the Commons is just a, a blooming ace performer when it comes to this as yeah. well. So we're doing the job of opposition the SNP is doing the job of opposition that is not being done on this subject by Labour. I, I just wonder if Anna Sarver was winging it. Do you know what I mean? Just thought, oh, I'll, I'll say that yeah. there. I mean, and, just that, and, I, and nobody's got to check up and nobody will say anything. And I'll, I, he, he said it before and that was a, a repetition. 
And it's an interesting one because apparently Labour Party insiders uh, perceive Sarwar as a major electoral asset. Uh, they're going to be doing a lot of focus on him in the upcoming general election, that Sarwar is going to be someone they're going to, you know, it'll be the Anna Sarwar election. I just wonder if that's going to backfire on him. You know, I mean, I do not, I don't find him easy to take to. I mean, just as a speaker or anything like that. I mean, that's just a, a personal, a personal just something about him. I don't, I, I, I don't take to him at all. Just mealy mouth again. It, it comes to the, the phrase of that. But that, that's the thing. So they're, they're apparently going to be, they're going to be focusing on that uh, as an electoral strategy. So we shall see how well that goes. And an electoral strategies, the, um, the Rochdale by-election. Just a, a, a wee bit about that when it was being discussed uh, on Good Morning on, on ITV. Uh, Ed Balls. Um, again, he, he almost said the, un, what, the, the, the unsayable Graham Jones and Azar Ali attending a meeting where Graham Jones, a prospective parliamentary candidate, turned around and said, F Israel, said that uh, Jones fundamentally couldn't be anti-Semitic uh, because he was on the Starmer wing of the Labour Party and not a Corbynite. And you're thinking, wait a minute, did I just hear that? <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? So that, 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 that just lays it out in the open. And it's also the, 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 the statements that come thick and fast continually. And as I say, I have differences with Jeremy Corbyn in all sorts of areas and the momentum movement and everything like that. But to say that, the, as Laura Koonsberg did that, uh, on her show, when discussing with David Lammy, was the, the, the discussion about uh, how riven with anti-Semitism Corbyn's Labour Party was. And you're thinking... That is now the common sense. That is now the, all the assumptions that are replaced at any time any discussion takes place is that Corbyn's Labour Party and those on the left were riven with anti-Semitism, where in the main it was anti-Zionist criticism. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but that's, yeah. and it is, it will be, but it is that grave difficulty, as you said earlier, it's that difficulty we, we find ourselves in now. But uh, but this t- and this is what just doesn't help because you know again it's a a good bit of leadership is to try to tease apart dangerous conf- things which if they form into a confluence create yeah. a torrent of abuse towards people that have nothing to do with the yeah. the origins and this is what's beginning you know which is happening in labour is that you cannot say anything now uh, within Stormer's labour which is I mean that's what's revealing about those remarks is a presumption now that such is the kind of command economy, the almost AI-generated cloneness of everything that comes out of Labour, that you could not have anyone uttering words that's within the camp because they have just decided that you can't even go there. You know, there's nobody can get in to say anything intelligent because it's just a no can do. But then, of course, you get, you know, you turn the corner and suddenly discover these candidates that before, mm. you know, the, 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 that kind of clampdown had happened. Unfortunately, social media holds <laughs> holds people's views for somewhat longer than, uh, you know, the Labour Party's internal control systems. <laughs> so it, it's got to be better to let some air into the room and to let there be, you know, a, a sort of proper discussion of of what the future might be. And I mean, whilst Labour's going on about it's not enough to just stop stuff emotionally and then the problems just limp on. I mean, crying in a bucket. You know, do you think do you think that trying to get even a ceasefire would not involve the sort of discussion that begins to inch you forward? I mean, I remember in the Northern Ireland situation, there was just a thing of, first of all, having to stop the violence 
And of course, that accompanied people trying to piece together what the future solutions would be and doing deals. And so many Mm -hmm. of the things that are in the framework of what now allows Northern Ireland to have a better situation by far than Scotland with its constitutional future, um, it all comes together. But the first imperative and the thing that you can get people to agree to is the violence has got to stop. So why is it good enough for Northern Ireland and then not good enough as an approach to take to Gaza. I mean, anyway, we'll go around in circles in this because we don't yeah. disagree with each other. Anyway, no, that's, that's, I'll yeah, certainly be watching the box on Wednesday to see what yes, happens. To see, yeah, and to see what is said and then what happens in the vote. Uh, but again, talking about difficulties, we've had uh, Rishi Sunak uh, with these two by-election uh, massive losses in Kingswood and where was the other one? Uh, I can't remember where the other well, one was. I want to say well, something. Oh dear, this is bad. Well, you're, yes, you're Kingswood so good on the details, yes, my dear, that well, I, I didn't let, bother. I let, I let myself down there. Kingswood and Wellingborough, and he described them. Let's just go through his statement. He described this midterm elections are always difficult. Wait a minute. Midterm, the, mm-hmm. the elections, yeah, where this is end of term, if you like, Rishi, are always difficult for incumbent governments. And the circumstances of these elections were, of course, particularly challenging. Well, you do have Peter Boone Bone being booted out after being suspended for exposing himself to a staffer. And the Tory candidate then turns out to be Bone's girlfriend. That's not easy. And Chris Skidmore resigning over the Tory retreat on green policies, which was a, a matter of principle, though. He then turned around and claimed that it was very low turnout, which shows not a huge amount of enthusiasm for Labour. I'm going to leave a beat in there. Did you never think, Rishi, it was a low turnout? doesn't show a lot of enthusiasm for Labour, but it shows a darn sight less enthusiasm for the Tory party yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if I know you're going to turn out. And, of course, what he then came up with is, our plan is working, Labour has no plan. No plan means no real real change. Plan, plan, plan. Change, change, change. And it's going to be the plan and change, no change under Labour uh, from Sunak, and change, change, change under Labour. But does Sunak have a point where he actually turns around and says, can you point me to any differences between what we're trying to do and what the Labour Party will do if they actually get into power? And I felt like saying, yes, well, I kind of agree with you on that one there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rishi, there's, there's, no, there's no lot for change there. But it was an absolute shooing for the Conservatives yeah. there. And the only thing they can hold out hope for is the fact that when it comes to a general election, that the people who voted for reform, the majority of whom voted for reform were former Tory voters. There's very little evidence of anybody Labour going to reform. And uh, so there was a kind of an even split in these elections between uh, former Labour voters voting Conservative. Uh, I thought, sorry, opposite way around, former Conservative voters voting Labour and former Conservative voters voting the forum. I, I, I mean, he must know it's the end of days, mustn't yeah. he? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a constant, you know, sort of discussion in this endless fevered thing about whether or not, you know, the rebels are, who clearly couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery have got <laughs> some sort of strategy. I mean, there's people rumbling about the May elections. Now there's more rumbling that people think there could be a May election. I mean, the May elections are local elections in England. Yeah. Uh, if they're really appalling, he might just think, you know, something. But I mean, they're going to be appalling. So, I mean, I don't know why you've got to wait to see the whites of the eyes as it were but now there's a lot of rumbling that it could be a may not a november election because you know things are just not getting any better basically uh so you know there might be a point of just thinking let's just put an end to the pain now um as you say they're clutching at straws hoping that you know reform got 13 percent of the vote in those um mm-hmm. by election well, in wellingsborough particularly uh 
you know, at a general election, will people think, well, actually, we will just be throwing that vote away, you know? Yeah. But then quite evidently, this is a protest against the Tories vote. And that does bring you to the heart of the Tory dilemma, at which one would have to say one is feeling no pain. Um as to which way they go, because, you know, one minute you get an opinion poll that suggests <clears throat> the only leader that would kind of create a, a kind of a surge of support for the Tories again is Boris Johnson, who, as the, <laughs> uh, the the commentator pointed out, Riley is not an MSP anymore. So that is no, right. <laughs> you, know, that's, you know, an MP rather, you know, so that's like there's nobody then. Let's just call a spade a spade here. That is the end. Um, you get the, the reform vote, which would seem to suggest and kind of, you know, Richard Tice, who's the head of that, is basically saying, you know, we need a, a 180 degree handbrake turn in the, in the way the country's being governed. And, you know, they basically want it to be kind of wicking off to the right. Mm. And another opinion poll that suggests that people want, you know, just some sort of old conservative values back in, you know, the old sort of one nation Tory stuff. So the thing is, and then, of course, the party is full of just completely warring factions who hate each other. Um, so, you know, which way out of all of that is sort of potluck? You know, one day it's one thing, one day it's going to be another until something, you know, triggers a complete meltdown. I mean, ironically, it, it won't be the Gaza vote because although there could well be, you know, Tories that kind of cross the floor in that mm -hmm. as well. But of course, the focus will be much more on Labour for that. So, uh, but the, I suppose the significant thing then with reform is that they actually beat the Lib Dems. So it's a, you know, it, things are all over the place really at the moment, just in this last dog days of an administration that knows it's going to lose. And we're all just sitting marking time now because, you know, because they, re they repealed the Fixed Parliaments Act. Um, they're back having what they themselves thought was a bad news, which was, you know, that the ability to kind of hold the whole country essentially to ransom like this, whilst nobody has any faith in any of the policy directions they're taking, because they're essentially dead political men walking. Yeah. And who would believe it's only three years since Hartlepool? You know, yeah, where, yes, yes, where that 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 result actually, when you go and think yourself right back at it, where they they actually slaughtered Labour, uh, and, uh, which, and I mean by all accounts that was you know a moment where Keir Starmer nearly resigned apparently you know, after that, yeah. so it it is quite you know that so that's certainly quite extraordinary. Anyway, mm. but I'm also funny what 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 Labour people are, think they're voting for because I mean uh, when when they were spoken to, they discovered that people who supported uh, who voted Labour were all in favour of nationalisation of public utilities, were all in favour of higher higher spending on things like social housing, etc. So yeah, you know whether they're going to get what they want. And it's the, the, the other aspect, to go back to Anna Sarwar, which is the, the, and I'm not the first to point this out, I do realise this, folks, but when I did read that Sarwar said he's quite prepared to take on Keir Starmer, who became Prime Minister, I thought, well, that's going to be interesting. That's the, the man who's going to, if he, he's going to stand in opposition to his own political party. You know, I thought, there you go, so he's quite willing to admit that Starmer might not be doing things which were in Scotland's interest. But I note this morning there's been a big... Uh, report by shelter in the state of uh, social housing in, uh, and focused particularly on Scotland, the, the elements I heard. Um, and it is, it is true that, I mean, there is, a, there is a massive, there is a significant crisis, massive crisis in social housing. But what I did is I, I'd, I'd done some digging, as you know, Leslie, um, and they were talking about the one of the focuses has been the, the, the right to buy. 
But of course, right to buy does not exist in Scotland. And that was a, one of the major steps that an SNP government did stopped was the, the ability to people to buy uh, the, the, the council houses. And what discovered that 40% of ex-council houses sold under right to buy are now, guess what, owned by private landlords. And they're paying more than twice the rent levels that they would have been paying on lo local authorities. The amount of housing benefit paid to private landlords is now more than £9 billion a year. And private tenants are now paying on average a third of their earnings to a landlord. Now, 14,000 council houses over there sold off over the years. Right to buy has is this, this is Scotland now. Well, yeah, and right to buy has led to some 3 million homes being lost in total from the social housing stock. That's in the UK. Yeah. And what I did is I had a quick look at the amount of social housing built in Scotland. So there were just under, there were 3,755 houses built, social houses built in 2021. Now that was down from the previous year, almost half from the previous year because of COVID. And at the same time period, there were only just over 3,000 social houses built in England. And in the previous year, there were precisely the same number of social houses built in England as in Scotland, 6,620. Now, if you were doing it on a, even a per capita basis, there ought to have been over 60,000 homes built in England at that point, social houses. So, I mean, it is a social housing crisis and it goes right to the heart of this fact and it goes back to everything we've, you've talked about before, Leslie, is the privatisation of society where we had council housing that when I was a when I was a young lad, teachers, headmasters, I remember all sorts of people right across the social spectrum lived in council houses and paid a fair rent. And these houses have been taken out of stock, not replaced. The rents have gone up. So what you've got is the transfer of that public monies that were spent and money that would come into the public purse has now been directly transferred to the private sector for profit. Yeah, and and actually, if you watch, I I watch ITN News at ten a lot now because I can't watch the BBC, and um, they've had uh they've had a campaign. Um, I think it, I wanted to say Daniel Hewitt, but I may have got my Hewitts mixed up. Young reporter who has absolutely got the bit between his teeth on this and has been doing, you know, and the, the other thing that's admirable, I think, about News at ten is that even on days when there's, you know, relatively big things happening, and there endlessly is in domestic politics in the world, they'll actually put his investigation top of the news, you know. Yeah. So they'll have a sort of, this is the kind of piteous situation people are stuck in. And they'll have another thing of just, you know, it's it's I can remember doing these things when I was a brownie reporter in the 1980s, <laughs> where you'd go to places and they'd just be mould, you know, dripping yeah. off the back of the, you know, and then all of that sort of just took a back seat, um, like we kind of assumed it got sorted. And you'd have to say again, I've spoken to enough people who said that, I mean, you know, we're, we're not in a great position because our homes are still, and it's <laughs> our crap basically can, compared to Denmark and going around with that film there's yeah. Danes in every audience. And the one thing that they'll all say is, I've been cold since I came here. <laughs> you know? 
and it's just the st the striking difference in the levels of insulation and and you know warmth in houses is just extraordinary and an, a thing that i'm also <clears throat> picking up as we're going around is um how much now that there is a requirement for of of local authorities and uh, to look at where district heating would be installed and we've looked at this before it is going to happen but the question is what companies will actually get the work i was in thurso near you know a mum's town of wick Wick has a district heating system. I was reading a wee piece in the local paper, um, which was a bit of a puff piece, really, about how that's working. And it's a company from the Midlands of England that's basically running that that system. Now, mm -hmm. let's not be picky, you know, because, OK, it's fine. You know, sometimes this happens. But for crying in a bucket, you know, I spoke to somebody who used to be a lecturer and was told essentially not to start. This was decades ago. And was told at the Northern College in there, so don't try bringing in talk about, you know, your fancy wind turbine technology here. Our job is to train apprentices for Dunray. And so the presence mm -hmm. of Dunray and the yeah. kind of huge muscle that it still sort of represents in thinking has been a real blockage to getting a shift. And if you see the Denmark film, you know, so much of that is about the college's constantly looking at what the technology they need to be yeah. teaching is every six months so that they are teaching the kids the big subsea cabling contracts that need to happen which would in some places allow electric cabling that's overhead to be undergrounded um it's also creating the district heating stuff they have then got the wherewithal to be able to make uh, other utilities knuckle down and put stuff down in trenches at the same time because they've got local authorities that well, yada 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 yeah but here we are um a, a, a pal in shetland is also drawing attention to the incredible resource we've got and if we don't understand what we've got and we're like the blooming wild west now with this because we have virgin territory on the the renewables resource front and the, the, you know, it is indeed state companies that are rolling in, but they're state companies from the Nordics and from, you know, Northern Europe who mm -hmm. are all going, you dancer, you know, there's just money aplenty to be made from coming in and su supplying the knowledge, which is fair enough um, to be able to run district heating systems and to run all sorts of different renewable systems. But if we're doing this fair transition thing, you know, we, we need to get our guys doing this. And this is so relevant because there was a letter signed by hundreds of businesses in the northeast of Scotland. Now, I cannot mind uh, whether it was to Keir Starmer, actually, or to Pomza Yusuf. I think it was to Labour. It's on the yeah. front page of The Sun today, apparently, you know, bye bye jobs in the northeast, because they're saying that the windfall tax that Labour's talking about yeah. would basically knacker everything in the northeast. Humza's up today. In fact, as we speak doing a speech there, which from the little fragments I've seen just seems to be we'd make a better fist of energy in Scotland. Yeah. Excuse your vote, you know, and also saying that Starmer's motivation is to kind of put a windfall tax to help pay for the astronomical amounts of money that need to be found to uh, produce nuclear power south of the border as a, as a sort of mainstay of the green economy. So, I mean, you've got an argument there because uh, Scotland's profile and one introduced by Alex Salmond was that we don't need nuclear in our mix once these uh, pl current plants have gone. And I'll grant you their lifetimes have been extended. But if we had control over energy and could properly subsidise and frame up um, a lot of the other tidal renewables, we would begin to build 
the base load that we need to balance our intermittent wind. We could do that. We can do that. Um, so that's a fair point to make, although, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, the Scottish government did make a hips of underselling the, you know, oh, the, yes. the Scottish wind contracts, the offshore wind contracts and and could be imposing greater requirements on all um, on all ventures to use a proportion of local labour, which is common across the world and is not imposed here. So there's all sorts of sort of it seems to be tricks being missed. And if I was in the northeast and listening to this, I guess you could just have a knee jerk. You know, listen, we know you guys are even more opposed to oil and gas than, you know, the Labour, because like you guys were out of the blocks on this earlier and sound like you mean it. And you've got to get to a stage where oil and gas is is a declining asset and the people who move. But this is the point in the most concerted, smart um, and with massive investment, you know, targeted investment way will carry that workforce over. But at the moment, Labour's not convincing because it's just dumped its plans. And the SNP, for a lot of people, will not be convincing because we're not independent and we yeah. haven't got control over energy. So it's a fair effect. And I guess all that people in Northeast can do is just say, you know, where what it needs to happen within the Scottish government is to have at least one absolutely foolproof plan uh, or, or project, rather not plan, do it where there is a transfer of skills to do something that, you know, like that district heating and create a Scottish district heating um, set of expertise, training in colleges. And now people might give me pelters and say, didn't you know we're already doing this? But this needs to be showcased, you know, that this is what we're doing and this is the big project. And at the moment, it just isn't. And people who are in the know, who are in these industries, energy industries around the north of Scotland, are totally alert to how much they feel they're just being left to sink and swim on their own. Yes, because I I do know that Five Calls are the Centre for Renewables, um, which again because i've lost contact with the college but it was established about 10, 10 at least 10 years ago for but again that was based upon the fact of responding to what was going on down in methyl area etc with that with that 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 change that was taking place within the, the framework and but again i do know that the fe colleges i mean uh and I, my criticism of the way it runs as a business model is is pile the students high sell it cheap and get bums on seats and running on a business model and sometimes within that framework well often within that framework from my perspective it doesn't actually respond in a way it ought to to the needs of the community and the needs of the economy in a correct way because it's based within that business model of it has to make money now that is an entirely entirely separate argument that we can well, well, the irony is, I mean, if you'd ever see this film, Pat, um, you know, the guys in Skiva College, for example, in Denmark, have got British people paying them money to go there <laughs> to to learn subsea cabling. We interview a guy yeah. from Hull. They've got people from Portugal, um, Poland, you know. So yeah. the thing is, once you get a reputation for this and part of the reputation you get is because not only are you teaching the skills of this, you're re 
renewing your district heating in the very town the college is situated yeah Deborah, if you, you know if you could if you could see me now i mean i'm, I'm metaphorically hitting my head against the wall on that basis. <laughs> okay I so mean, don't do just, that don't do that <laughs> just there's just that just is so i mean i mean it's uh, it is that that whole frustration again of having been involved in further education for the vast majority of my working life in in terms of making them flexible and responsive and dealing with individuals and Again, not being tied to that to that that kind of business model, a pseudo business model, which would actually, you know, it doesn't actually do what it's meant to do. And talking about British, uh, uh, picking up on the BAFTAs, hopefully, I, I was hoping the BAFTAs are going to be lighter, you know, because I was going to talk about Divine Joy Randolph, who won Best Supporting Actress for Holdovers, a movie I would go and see again. You know, it's so enjoyable, as opposed to Oppenheimer, which I think is an amazing film, but I can only watch once. It's mm, one of those yeah. ones, but which won everything. But again, talking about it was was Poor Things by Alistair Gray. Of course, Poor Things isn't actually the title of the novel. It's Poor Things, episodes from the early life of Archibald McCandless, MD, Scottish public health officer, and Glasgow as a central character. Now... I would not be bringing this up Classic much. Classic <laughs> Yes, I love it. I, it's, just, it's just so good. And again, I'm fully aware of the fact when you make a movie, you make a movie. You take a novel and it, it transmogrifies. You turn it into a film. But again, this constant... Emma Stone said it. The, the, she won Best Actress. She said, I'd like to thank my dialogue coach for uh, making me develop such a convincing British accent. Number one, what is a British accent? Well, it turns out to be RP, received pronunciation. That anyway, so that's what it is. And again, the focus when I was watching other programmes about it, there seemed to be an entire set of conversations going on about this British accent, including Helen MacArthur, who's from Northern Ireland, called Coleraine, I believe. And she was going about the British accent. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. You as a film critic ought to realise, A, there's no such thing as a British accent, but let's just join in. So that's it. Not only did they denude the entire film of any Glasgow or Scottish connection, we now have it being thumped on top of the head, (laughs) metaphorically again, with the fact it is a British accent and it's a British film so there you go and I'm probably petty and mean about it but it is incredibly frustrating when such an amazing novel you know which is rooted in Glasgow is it's no longer it's yeah put that to one side and it didn't win it's it's totally it's it's totally valid um but uh, this is also just drinking in the American perspective, because obviously from an American perspective, we're all speaking British, you know, I mean, in some generalised way, because to be fair, if you haven't got much of an awareness of American accent, you just hear an American accent. And that probably mm. is just as annoying on the other side of the oh, channel. Yeah. And more so, given that their country is, you know, humongously larger than we are, that we just sort of slightly detect maybe Texas is a bit different from kind of New England or something. But we're not pinning it down with great accuracy. So so that the problem in it is for a British audience who do know accents very well and having had so many big hits lately that have been quite dependent on um, specific location, whether that's. Mm -hmm. The sort of stuff that's come out of Yorkshire, and I've suddenly forgotten all the names of these tremendous things that Sarah Lancashire was in, you know, the and kind of then, of course, um, Peaky Blinders, although there was a big argument about how well that represented Birmingham accents. But still, the point is, it's there, you know, and people 
People have an argument about it as soon as they hear a dud accent. You know, everyone's really well. Belfast, that was the the big discussions about. Yes, (laughs) but so the but to me the bigger problem is anybody who's a British commentator analysing stuff for a British audience using an American perspective. You know, it just doesn't make sense, really. And I'm actually now listening on the audio thing, which of course I've now got sort of right into is Rose Nicholson by Andrew Gregg, which is set in. I mean, it's just incredible thing to be going. Back in time, even further, this is 1574, St. Andrews, this is set in. And it's like, it's amazing because whilst TV and everything is just becoming, you know, well, with, you know, some notable exceptions, actually, let's be fair, uh, sort of more and more homogenised. You can't really expect to hear much Scots. Um, You can pick your way through, you know, literature has been using proper Scots and some tremendous Scots writers. But the advent of the audiobook means that you essentially have an endless series of plays, essentially, if that's the mm-hmm. way you want to look at it. Long, long, long characterizations with, uh, you know, with real attention to detail from the period and, you know, the turns of phrase and the accents. I mean, having been back in Caithness, where my mother came from, um, I find myself lapsing very quickly into, you know, the, the way she would talk about a wee touch of something would be a dechty. So oh, I was, you know, I was out with my redoubtable 95 year old aunt Kathleen and asking her if she just wanted a dechty of that and she just looked at me and I thought God, that took one day you know, to yeah. kind of lapse back in and the beauty of it was as we were sitting in the Norseman Hotel which has got the best blooming carver in Scotland um, in Wick on the banks of the river there uh, folk were coming up to say hello to her and uh, they were sort of having a quick glance at me and Kathleen was saying oh this is Leslie she's Helen's girl and I can't tell you the delight finally to just be known as Helen's girl, mm-hmm. you know, because the rest of the country, you know, you, yeah. you're from very much from where you're from, Pat. But I've been at blooming wandering all over the place, you know, and obviously my accent reflects that. But for just that two days, really, there, everybody was looking at me, trying to relate me to Kathleen and then remembering my mother. And it was such a God, if this is what people have the rest of the time, it's an argument for just never moving at all. So <laughs> I, I fairly enjoyed myself. I really, really enjoyed myself. It's like swimming or just stretching out into this accent that I'd heard all my life from mum yeah. and just wallowing in it everywhere you went, a shop, you know, any anywhere yeah. you went. Here it came at you again, you know, and it was just lovely. So, yes, I've had a lovely time knocking about. And thank you to everyone. Really a big thanks to everyone who came uh, to to all the events. Um, There was a strange amount of no shows at the Eden Court Theatre, despite the fact people had actually paid for seats, which seemed a bit puzzling. Uh, Nairn was unbelievable because they had 196 people. I noticed some sour remarks online when I put the picture up from somebody who has sort of said, oh, yeah, not quite the glory days when you had 100,000 on the streets. And I would just like to say to you, first of all, there's a thing. Thank you for acknowledging belatedly that we did indeed have those number on the streets because it's taken you a while. Um, And the other (laughs) thing is there is the thing called room capacity and you can't get 100,000 people into a place that's got a capacity of 200. No can do, you know. So um, I still, in the sense that nobody kicks a dead kind of dog, there's a, you know, that, I don't know quite what unionism is doing in terms of large public events. And this is, I hope, not just about independence. You know, there's lots of people who are at these events who are just not, you're just there to make their minds yeah. up. Um, but anyway, thank you to everybody who's organised those events, particularly Ian Bruce, actually, and Nairn. What a blooming turnout that was. 
And it was a lovely, as my mother would have called, concert in that it was kind of somebody had done home baking. It was a real night out. Everyone had a tremendous crack after it. So, you know, these are these are great events. Thank you. God, I mean, it, it does sound, I mean, I never, ever underestimate the power of place, Leslie, of where you come from, where your family's from. It is just that, and you're right, it, it is, it's su- such a given for somebody like myself who's for a couple of dottons about, you know, in London and Edinburgh and Glasgow for career. I've lived in this area all my life and my family and my friends and my, I'm rooted in in the area. And it, it, is, it is a thing. And to hear the accent and to hear people speaking in that way. And and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to finish our story. We talked about St. Andrews, um, that uh, a, a, a colleague from the National Council of Training in Journalism said to when she was coming up to do a visit with us, said she was really looking forward to coming to Kirkcaldy. And I said, that's lovely. She says, you know, I went to university in St. Andrews, to which I replied, well, this will be your first time in Fife then. <laughs> so... On that, I debated whether to say that or not, but I thought, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish another. And on that slightly snidey note, we'll see you next week, Johns. Bye.